0: I've mentioned here some time back that I used to work with a a fellow with whom I engaged in a religious discussion on more than one occasion and he made a statement to me at one time to this effect. He said, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus but I cannot believe that uh, a great fish swallowed a man and that the man Live to tell about it. In other words, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in Jonah. Well, is that a possibility? Can we believe in Jesus, but not in Jonah, in the sense of that account? Well, the answer is no, because in Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, even so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So I can't believe in Jesus and not believe in Jonah and the account of the great fish because Jesus endorsed that account. So I cannot have, have it both ways. I can't accept Jesus and deny Jonah. Well... No doubt there are many who claim to believe in Jesus and who do not deny the account of Jonah and the great fish, but many of those same individuals would deny something else while claiming to believe in Jesus, and that is the existence of hell. And so this morning, we're going to continue our series on the New Testament Christian as we examine this topic. The New Testament Christian Believes in the place called hell. Notice the New Testament Christian believes in the place called hell. Because hell is a place. And before we look at that from the scriptural standpoint in more detail, I want to share with you some statistics about belief in hell among Americans. This is from the Wall Street Journal online, uh, May 29th of this year, and it simply says, against a backdrop of horrific crimes and devastating natural disasters, 56% of Americans surveyed believe in the devil, 53 believe in hell, 53%, and 43% believe in hell, quote, as a place of suffering and punishment where people go after they die. That's according to a recent poll of 1,218 Americans conducted over the Memorial Day weekend earlier this year. But the survey also shows that belief in hell is declining among Americans. The new survey shows that while a majority of Americans still believe in hell, the number is declining. A 2008 Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life Uh, Slash U.S. Religious Landscape Survey showed that 59 percent of Americans believed in hell in 2008. So now it's down to 53 percent. But look at this, an earlier Pew study reported that 71 percent believed in hell back in 2001. So from 2001 to 2013, There's been a decline in the number of Americans who believe in the existence of hell from 71% down to 53%. Now, that brings the question to mind why the decline? Why the decline? Well, here's an excerpt from uh, an article. This is a statement from Mike Whitmer. He's uh, some professor of systematic theology at Grand Rapids, uh, some Grand Rapids uh, institution. But he makes this statement, in a pluralistic postmodern world, students, he's talking about I guess students that he teaches, are having a more difficult time with the idea of people going to hell forever because they didn't believe the right thing. Further, Americans' optimism and tolerance for diversity complements a growing view of God as benevolent, not judgmental, according to other experts. We touched on this somewhat in class uh, this morning, Tommy Leslie brought up the point that that's a, that's a growing trend uh, in terms of a mindset in this country that God is, is all benevolent and he is all benevolent as well as all just and all other things that, uh, that are completely consistent with his uh, nature, but the pluralistic, that is, you know, live and let live attitude, Postmodern uh, world where basically anything goes, and postmodernism basically says, uh, whatever makes you happy in religion, you do that, and I'm okay with that, and you be okay with whatever I do. In other words, it's just basically a complete abandonment of any kind of pattern uh, and a complete denial that this book contains and is a pattern for how we should conduct ourselves in terms of how we worship, how we live, etc. It's basically do your own thing. And so the tolerance level has risen to an all-time high. And if you're not tolerant of other people, they're very intolerant of that. Many of them are. They become very intolerant of your lack of tolerance many times and very antagonistic uh, toward that. Well, that is tragically, I believe, accurate in terms of why we see the decline in the number of people in this country who believe in the existence of hell. And yet I do not doubt that many of those people would claim to believe, to some extent, in the Bible. But if so, gets back to Jesus and Jonah. How can you believe in the Bible and what Jesus said about Jonah when he endorsed that account and deny the account itself? Well, the same thing is true when it comes to hell. Listen to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Matthew 5:29 and 30. Just as we cannot believe in Jesus but deny Jonah, we cannot believe in Jesus and deny the existence of hell because Jesus had quite a bit to say about it. Now I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Because in Luke 16, 19 through 31, We have a picture of the place called hell. Now, as we look at this picture and as we read these verses, we need to keep in mind some distinction in the words that are used in Scripture concerning hell. Gehenna. Gehenna is the word that indicates the final destination of the wicked, the ultimate and final destination of the wicked. But there's another word that we find used only in 2 Peter 2 and verse 4, and that is the word Tartarus. And that is the realm of Hades where the wicked await the final judgment. Hades, the word Hades describes the entire realm of departed spirits with two areas, Tartarus and paradise. Remember to the thief on the cross, Jesus said today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was saying, we're both going to die today. And our spirits are going somewhere in the hadian realm. Obviously, the spirit of Christ was going into paradise. But because of the penitent thief and uh, the ability that the Lord had to forgive his sins while on earth, he said, you will be with me there. You won't be in Tartarus where the wicked spirits await the final judgment. You will be with me in paradise. All of that is in the Hadean realm. The realm of Hades is the general realm within Hades, paradise, and Tartarus. The word Tartarus uh, used here only in 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. So with that as a background, we can go back to Luke 16, 19 through 31, and we can see that here we have a picture of the place called hell. Even though this is not the final destination of the wicked, the description of Tartarus here or the realm of departed wicked spirits, as well as some description of paradise in the account, gives us details that are parallel to much of what the Lord spoke about in terms of the characteristics of the final destination of the wicked, hell. In other words, the characteristics are, are parallel. And so as we look at this as our primary text, we are able to see some points about this place called hell that uh, are sobering indeed and that we need to examine. Now, as we do that, let's read, first of all, the account in Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. Reading from the New King James, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried and being in torments in Hades, specifically Tartarus now, but the Hadean realm is being described here, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, Have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead." There is so much to learn from this account in Luke 16 about the characteristics of the ultimate and final destination of the wicked that placed Gehenna, the place that is hell. And it is a place. But what kind of place is it? First of all, it is a place where perception is uninterrupted. Go back to verses 22 and 23. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he what? He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Perception, awareness is still there. After this life is over, what does that say about uh, what does that say about those who would say that when you're dead you're you're dead all over just like rover you're dead all over nothing more uh, just complete oblivion, total annihilation there are those who who teach annihilation but clearly the body without the spirit is dead the scripture says, as James points out in James two26 but the spirit remains alive alive and perceptive aware perceptive either in paradise or Tartarus as the Lord taught us in this text under consideration and incidentally in this text under consideration we have truth being taught and I believe very strongly that it is truly an account and that it is not a parable there are those who say well you This is just a parable, as if to say, you can't believe this, this is just a parable. Well, even if it were just a parable, the Lord never taught anything untrue in his parables. It would still teach truth, even if it were a parable. But it is not characteristic of the parabolic form that the Lord used so often when he taught in parables, and it is not characteristic of that. Therefore, uh, I believe very strongly, as do I believe many, many others, that this is truly an actual account. But the point is... Truth would be taught uh, regardless. But something else here. The Lord gave insight into the extent of the perception, the uninterrupted perception in the Hadean uh, realm. He gave us some insight here. The rich man recognized Abraham and Lazarus and his life on earth and his remembrance of that life on earth was uninterrupted, the remembrance of that life. That's uh, that's evident from the rich man's initial request and Abraham's response. Remember, he said, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham called upon the rich man to do what? To remember the good things that he was blessed with during his life. Thus, the scripture obviously reveals that memory, memory is an enduring characteristic in the afterlife. But think about this. For the wicked, for the wicked, for the unprepared, the quality of perception, including memory, will be a burden rather than a blessing throughout eternity. Think about this, that the rich man, even now, even now, lives with the memory of the wasted opportunities that he had in life to obey God and to help others with his material blessings that he had in life. And that included helping that poor beggar Lazarus who was laid at his gate day in and day out. Hell is a place where perception is uninterrupted and as wonderful and as pleasant as memory can be it will be a curse in hell. But hell is also a place where punishment is unending. And every exchange between the rich man and Abraham in Luke 16 simply reinforces all that the Lord elsewhere taught about the unending punishment of hell. Humanity, humanity has great difficulty with this point we're making here. And I can certainly understand, being part of humanity, why humanity has a problem uh, with that in terms of of the sobering uh, nature of this. But as, as difficult as it is, it is reality. And I dare not dismiss eternal punishment as a reality simply because... It's not a pleasant thought. I can't do that if the scriptures won't allow me to do that. But there are those who've embraced annihilation because I think it's so unpleasant pleasant to think about unending punishment and I can understand the unpleasantness of it. Believe me, I can understand that. And then there have been those, and yes, yes, even in the church we've had those who have embraced the idea that hell will not be unending but that there will be some termination of it at some point in time. But when the rich man cried out to Abraham to send Lazarus to cool his tongue, Abraham didn't say, just hang on, hang on, and after a thousand years I'll be able to get him to you. Or in a million years I'll be able to get him there. But he simply reminded him that Lazarus was comforted continually while the rich man was condemned continually. And the conditions of both, though they are contrasting in nature, as contrasting as you could imagine, they are parallel in duration. And if one claims that the text indicates an end to the condemnation of the rich man then one would have to concede that there's an end to the comfort of Lazarus as well. That while Lazarus is comforted now, the time's coming when he won't be comforted anymore. You'd have to do that in order to construe that there's an end to the condemnation of the rich man. But the Lord elsewhere settled the matter for us beyond dispute. And that's in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. We won't take time to read all of the verses there, but it's a depiction of the judgment scene. As the Lord projects himself to the point in time, when time is no more, when he will be the judge of all mankind. And to summarize, he talks about those on the left and those on the right. The goats on the left, the sheep on the right. And after he gives some basis for, for the judgment, and in this case, though it's not the total basis for judgment, obviously, benevolence is emphasized. In other words, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was sick, you visited me, That's the uh, That's the foundation for that particular uh, passage. But then, when you look at verse 46... When you look at verse 46, what does he say concerning the sheep and the goats? First of all, those on the left, the disobedient. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, the words everlasting and eternal are absolutely identical. In fact, both are translated from the same word in the original. Therefore, the durations of everlasting punishment and eternal life are the same. Who says so? The Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. Hell is a place. As horrible as the thought is, and as difficult as it is for humanity to to grasp it, it is nonetheless reality. Hell is a place where punishment is unending. Perception is uninterrupted. Punishment is unending. But hell is also a place, we learn from this text, we are examining, where petitions are unheeded. Again, go back to... Uh, The petition in Luke 16, 24. Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. Think about something here for a moment. It is interesting, isn't it, to note that even in this place of punishment, the rich man still desired to have someone serve him. Even in punishment, in torment, he still had the, uh, the master mindset. The master mindset was still... Intact. In other words, I'm the master and you're the servant. Would you have him come and dip the tip of his finger in water? And the answer was no. But in verse 27, there's a second petition. And that second petition provides great insight into the power of the written word. And this is so crucial for us to fully Appreciate, and oh, if the world itself would only appreciate it. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. The place of torment. The rich man did not want his fleshly brothers, he did not want his fleshly brothers to be with him. Him, and as we look at that request, we are struck by a very sobering fact, and that is that hell, or in this case, Tartarus, ultimately hell, because we're looking at the same characteristics, is a place, the one place at least, where misery does not love company. Those who are there, no matter how close and dear they have been to us in this life, if indeed they are there now. They don't want us there now. They want us to do what we know to be right and to do it because misery does not love company in hell and because of their concern for us. Many times obedience to the gospel is inhibited if not barred completely by the thought among those who have been taught the truth that those who have preceded them in death, loved ones did not obey that truth. But what would those loved ones say to those who had the opportunity to (coughs) obey the truth and to, to live it, obey it and live it, obey it and live it. And that's what we learn, if nothing else, but there's much more to learn from this request and from the response. The rich man did not want his brothers to join him, but think about it, his time to influence anyone expired with his final breath and nothing could be done from the Hadian side to change the course of the living. Nothing, nothing. And the responses of Abraham Reveal something to us. You know, there are those who who claim that, well, the spirits come back. And seances are held and all sorts of things that are foolish and fallacious. Spirits do not return to the living from the dead. They do not return. And that's what Abraham reminds the rich man of but he also tells him something of vital importance here, and that is that the Word of God is the all-sufficient God. He said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them hear them. All scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, at the time that this uh, account is given, Moses and the prophets, that's a reference, a metaphorical reference to the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets. In other words, they lived under the Old Testament law. And he was saying to them, they have that law. They have the writings of Moses. They have the writings of the prophets. Let them obey the written word. That's exactly what Abraham is saying. Let them obey the written word. Well, we have not only the words of Moses and the prophets, and we're not under that law anymore. We're under the law of Christ, but we have the complete revelation. We have that which furnishes us completely unto every good work. And we don't need the confirmation of it any longer By miracles as they had to have it confirmed while it was still in in human men who were preaching it, they had to confirm their preaching by the miracles they performed. But no more, they're written. And we believe because of what's written. John 20, 30 and 31. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not what, John, written in this book, but what, John? These are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that, believing you may have life in his name, these are written to produce what faith are miracles needed to be performed today to produce faith? No, this produces faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, and so the miraculous age ceased when that which is complete or whole or perfect came first Corinthians thirteen eight through thirteen, and thus we have it in its final form. But what Abraham said to the rich man, even in a time when miracles were still being performed, was this, the Word of God. The Word of God takes precedence. The Word of God is what you should heed. When the Lord walked the earth, He performed undeniable miracles, didn't He? Nonetheless, many denied Him. His resurrection from the dead was was confirmed by, as the book of Acts puts it, Many infallible proofs, Acts 1, verse 3. And yet the majority still failed to believe. They still failed to believe. Why? What was the problem? It was the same problem that exists today. It was a heart problem. Today, this message is complete and it is confirmed. Why won't people believe it? it's still a heart problem it's still a heart problem and if miracles were still being performed as some erroneously claim they are there would still be those who would deny even if it were an actual miracle. There would be those who would deny it if their heart wasn't right. How do I know that? Because as we've talked about before in John 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and many who were there saw it and some believed as a result and others went off to the Pharisees to tell them in effect, you've got big trouble now, we've got trouble now, he's raised the dead. And what did they do? They said, well, we need to believe in him then. No, they said, we need to kill Lazarus. We need to kill him. We need to get rid of the evidence. So tell me that if miracles were actually being performed today, that that would be the cure-all for any unbelief. No, it wasn't then. It wouldn't be now. But the cure-all is here in the all-sufficient, fully inspired Word of God. But hell is also a place where paradise is unattainable. In Luke sixteen twenty six. In Luke sixteen twenty six, remember the sobering words. When he said, Let Lazarus come and dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, what did Abraham say? Say, besides all this, between us and you there is what? A great gulf what? Fixed separation. And the separation is fixed. Never will it change. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. That separation will be finalized then. And when the Hadean realm is emptied of its occupants, the separation that they now experience will not end at that time. And following the final judgment, the righteous residents of paradise will be ushered into heaven forever while the wicked souls in Tartarus will be cast into their final destination, hell. And then the rich man and all those in torment will realize fully the characteristic of the place we next and finally Examine. Hell is a place where pardon is unavailable. And neither the prayers of the living nor the payment of their money can change the condition of those who have left this life. Purgatory is an invention of man and it has no foundation in Scripture. Once the Spirit departs the body, that spirit will be forever blessed or forever cursed, and there's nothing the living can do to alter that state. Baptism for the dead is likewise an invention of man that, yes, salves the consciences of the living, but it can do nothing to change the destiny of those who died unprepared to meet their God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad. And when that day comes, impassioned petitions and importunate prayers will not bring pardon for those who haven't sought that pardon while they were here on earth. The dream of God, the dream of God if you will, is that all would be saved. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the next verse reminds us the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now Peter asks the question, therefore, since this is going to happen, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And if you are that right kind of person in holy conduct and godliness, two verses later Peter reminds you that you can be among those who, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's a description of heaven itself. And what should motivate us to serve? What is the supreme motivation for our service to God? Well, think think about what God has done in the golden text of the Bible, as we so often call it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners or still sinners, Christ died for us. What is the supreme motivation for Christian service? John depicts it in 1 John 4:18 and 19 when he writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And then he adds, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. Oh, I do not doubt. I know that on Pentecost Day when the gospel was preached for the first time and those people were convicted that they had crucified the very Son of God, many of them cried out and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And do you believe that at that point when they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That their hearts were filled to overflowing with love? No, I think at that point they had a fear of hell. A fear of the consequences of crucifying the very Son of God. But I can see a transition very quickly from guilt to gratitude. As they were told what to do, to be forgiven. And as they gladly received the word, that transformation process from guilt to gratitude is underway. And after they had obeyed and realized that the God of heaven had given them a chance to be forgiven of crucifying his only begotten son, then love began to overflow, just as it should with us. And so the New Testament Christian, compelled by love, is not crippled by fear, but is comforted in hope. Do you have that hope this morning? Not if you haven't believed with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and acted upon that belief by repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and then by being buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. That your fear of being lost might be transformed into a love and gratitude for the one who's made possible your forgiveness. So that you leave here this morning compelled by love, not crippled by fear, and comforted In hope, If you're here this morning and have known that love but have left your first love and need to come home to your first love as a wayward child of God, we plead with you to come home in the way that the wayward child of God should come home according to Scripture. Repentance of sin, confession of sin that needs to be confessed publicly, saying, I have sinned, pray with me and for me, and we'll do just that. Your brothers and sisters who love you to a God who loves you supremely and who loved you so much he made possible that forgiveness. Will you come as we stand and sing to encourage